Roderick's Rendezvous, an occasionally unprepared, mostly semi-weekly, creative and conversational sandbox hosted by Seattle writer, musician, and retired senator John Roderick. John begins the program with some thoughts on baby boomers, car culture, and then gets heckled by his mom. It was forbidden for me to go see Animal House. But as soon as I possibly could, I saw Animal House. You know what? You know what? Get get your own show. A little later, John has a conversation with singer-songwriter Shelby Earle, who traded a job in an office for the life of a full-time artist and hasn't looked back. I just used to sit at a desk and feel totally misaligned with myself. So for me, I've never been more broke and I've never been happier. All that and more on Roderick's Rendezvous. I've gone on record many times in many different venues about how much resentment I have toward the baby boomers for just, thank you, was that a round of applause? Uh, Just a small smattering of baby boomer hatred? Good, I'm glad we're all on the same page. Uh, I grew up in the shadow of the baby boomers in a way that still causes me grief, tons and tons of grief, because I feel maybe maybe, uh, an artificial sense that what what I could have been culturally, what my generation could have done culturally, was overshadowed by this monolithic, self-loving baby boomer culture that was still gobbling up all the cultural food and sucking up all the air uh, through my whole teenage years. And of course, that's a ridiculous idea, right? Because it's not like my generation uh, existed ever any other way, right? It's not like there was a pure Generation X that it could have existed in any way other than in reaction to the baby boomers. But still, when I reflect back on my teen years and the awkward kind of attempts we were making to live up to the baby boomers' incredibly grandiose sense of their own importance and how much we, even in in the moment of our own youth, were reflecting on how our time was so much worse than this amazing time that had just happened where everybody was like doing cool stuff and we were living in this shit time. And I've thought about it a lot and tried to reflect on prior generations and on present ones trying to see if that is a really common experience. Like did the young people of the 1930s think, wow, the 20s were so much better? Actually, they probably did. The 20s were way better than the 30s. But uh, as I've been thinking about it and chewing on it, you know, I realized that the, that the influence that that generation had was even more profound than, than, than I know consciously. And part of that was that the, the boomers went into a nostalgia mode really early, right? I mean, they, they sort of peaked in 1970 or something, and by 1978, they were already fully in the flower, and the, most of the boomers were in their 
late 20s, early 30s at that point, and they were already reflecting back on their own idyllic childhoods and reflecting back on their teens and early 20s in this way that was, uh, where, where they, were, they were so sort of mesmerized by their own experience. And the, the, the key thing that was sticking in my mind today was uh, the movie Animal House, which um, when Animal House first came out in 1977, my mom went to see it. And she came home and she declared that I was not allowed to see Animal House. <laughs> she knew, and I, I think she said that even before I had expressed a desire to see it. But she knew that that would be a thing that I would want to see. And so it was forbidden for me to go see Animal House. But as soon as I possibly could, I saw Animal House. That, you know what? You know what? Get, get your own show. If you if you wanna if you want your own revisionist history to, it was you you didn't you disallowed me to see Animal House when I was nine years old and I. I'm not gonna take any more heckling. But I I saw Animal House as soon as I could and the and the and the the it was so captivating, the, the sort of the premise that in 1964, when the movie was set, there was still, the, the world was such a simple place, right? And there were squares, and there were losers, and the squares ultimately were the losers, and the losers were ultimately the heroes. And it was, you know, set in this incredibly sophomoric version of, um, of life that in some ways, I mean, it was made entirely by baby boomers who were, who were thinking about their own past with this superiority, this post-Vietnam superiority, but also they were reveling in it, reveling in the panty raids and the food fights and the, uh, the short sheeting of the beds and all this sort of stuff that then got, got turned into the movie Porky's and, and this whole culture. And as a young person, as an 11-year-old, that version of near adulthood was thrilling to me. Like, wow, just the next thing on my horizon when I become a teen is gonna be that I like go to toga parties and climb up ladders and peep on sorority girls and like take, you know, like steal somebody's brother's Lincoln Continental and use a, uh, like an arc welder to turn it into a tank where we ruin the town parade? <laughs> this is like, this, this was the, the absolute fantasy idea of what adulthood looked like to me that was, that had already been through the echo chamber about three different ways, right? It was a, it was a, a fantasy that 40-year-olds were having about their own 20s. That, and it was being sort of broadcast to me as a 10-year-old as a version, uh, as a version of, the, of the future, and I think my whole generation went through that. And if you think about it, like Animal House was made in 1977, set in 1964. That is the equivalent of a movie made today about the year 2001. And when you think about what happened culturally between 1964 and 1977 versus what's happened culturally between 2001 and now, I 
I mean, we basically have all the same bands still. <laughs> Whereas between 1964 and 1977, there were, there were six cultural upheavals, complete upheavals. So that, that continues, to, continues to gnaw at me. And I, th and I think about our grunge era and the rebellion that we, that we drummed up to feel some sense of equivalency with the with the boomers and by that by the time by the time 1991 came around and all the boomers were were i guess basically my age now in their mid to late 40s they had re they really had a sense of their own importance and had then the fog between them and their actual past was so thick that it, it had become this like montage basically uh, th that we all think of the 60s now as sort of just a montage where the the choppers are coming in and then then the doors start playing and then naked girls are dancing and it's like wow yes yes uh, in 1991 the only enemy we had was another form of heavy metal <laughs> right we were just mad at the butt rockers who were who were literally like one step over. Like Pearl Jam in 1990 were totally butt rockers. And by 91, by the winter of 91, they were like, they took their hats and turned them around and were like, we're not butt rockers anymore. We hate butt rockers. It was just like, what? that's not really a big enemy, right? That's not like the Vietnam War, just to like, to hate winger. But the, one of the profound, lasting things that my, my like, imposed worship of the baby boomers has left with me, and I, and I really do mean imposed worship, like I worship the baby boomers like we all do, but I worship them like I am a North Korean worshiping Kim, Kim Jong-il. Like there's no, I don't have, a, I don't have an, an option, right? It's like, yes, Hendrix, yes, he's great, yes. Every one of those guys is great. The, the Vietnam War is a really fashionable war. <laughs> the war, uh, my wars are shitty little wars by comparison and, and like all, everything, it's just like the civil rights movement. Yes, yes, I worship it. I worship your whole time, you bastards. But the one thing that has stuck with me as a daily practice is the worshiping of American cars that was, that was like seeded into me at a young age. This USA hot rod car cult. And right about the time that I became, you know, that I, there, I reached the age where I could legitimately buy a car and start to drive. It almost perfectly coincides with the last halfway decent car ever made in America. <laughs> right? Like, I turned 15 and I was like, I, I can start looking for cars. And Detroit was like, the K-car! The new Dodge piece of shit! The new Ford, like, Mustang shitberg! They were all garbage. The coolest car when I was in high school was, do you remember when the Ford Thunderbird came out with the new Ford Thunderbird that was like 
my mom described it as a pregnant porpoise. Do you have a problem with that? <laughs> Direct quote. But something happened in 1985 where, it was, where Detroit was like, I know, let's make all cars look like lozenges. And it swept the world, and now all your cars look like lozenges. There's not a single car on the road now that doesn't look like a lozenge. Even the big SUVs and the big like Ford F-250s, they're like a lozenge, a lozenge that someone put truck nuts on. <laughs> like they're, they're like, they're comically unattractive. And yet this, this seed was planted in my head by, by the sort of the boomers thinking about their own childhoods, this American graffiti, like re retro love. Right at the most formative moment in my life, I, I got, um, what, dosed, I guess with the love of the 1972 Chevy Camaro. And I've been trying to shake this spell for the last 30 years, and I can't. So, like in full confession mode, I spend probably conservatively six to eight hours a week looking at hot rod cars on the internet. And I think about it a lot. And I, it's not just that I'm thinking about the hot rod cars. I'm thinking about why am I doing this? Life is short. I could have learned to play lacrosse <laughs> in that amount of time. I could have become an authorized Rolex repairman <laughs> in the amount of time over the last six years that I have spent looking at Corvairs and wondering, are they really unsafe? <laughs> like, and and there, and I'm and I'm I'm telling myself a story somehow, right? I want, a, I I want a new car, and I want that new car to be a classic car. And the reality is, I already have two cars. Neither one of them belongs to me, <laughs> but they are both in my charge. And over the last seven years, I have had six cars. None of them registered to me. Well, that's maybe not true. So I had, I had, a, I had my tour van, which at 300,000 miles gave up the ghost. I had, uh, when my dad died, I inherited his Chrysler, his 96 Chrysler LHS, which was the, the absolute perfection of the lozenge form of car design. It was just like, okay, put a bunch of jello on the ground, and then put a blanket over it. <laughs> Your new Dodge LHS. I inherited this thing, leather upholstery, some kind of V8, or some kind of V6 motor that was like, uh, made no particular sound or had no particular vibe. And then my brother, when he realized that I was the repository of my dad's junk car, my brother showed up one day with my dad's old junk car, his 1987 Audi 5000S Quattro, which had been living in Yakima for 15 years and was like sun-baked. And, and he was like, hey, thought you might like dad's other car. See ya. <laughs> Parked it in front of my house. And then uh, 
I was driving those two cars for a while, and then my mom did, bought her new car, and gave, and I inherited her Chrysler Sebring convertible, white Sebring convertible, <laughs> dad boner car. <laughs> and I also have a black Jetta. None of these cars appeals to me. What I want is some American muscle. I won a 1964 Pontiac GTO. Uh, thank you. <laughs> I want, really, a 1964 Cadillac convertible. That's really what I want. And I picture myself in these cars, and I, I have this, uh, I have kind of a familial memory with a time when I was working at Steve's Broadway News on Broadway, and there was a I would sit and I basically got paid to uh, read magazines all day and insult people that came in looking for directions. And uh, I, uh, there was a magazine called Country Life, which was uh, a, a UK magazine that was just about other people's, uh, it, was, it was basically about mansions for sale, castles for sale. And I remember reading this, reading castle ads over and over and thinking like, I'm gonna live in a castle. One of these days, I'm going to get a castle keep. I'm gonna, it's going to have a moat. I'm going to live in the English countryside. And I would fantasize for hours and hours about the castle I was going to have. And then one day, I kind of had this flash of realization that, like, if I bought a castle and moved to the English countryside, like, what would my first day in my new castle be like? I would go in. It would be cold. It would be empty of furniture, so it would just be like living in a empty castle. And I would get super bored looking for secret passageways, and I would go down to the pub, and no one there would want to be my friend, because I would be the American who just bought the castle. <laughs> and no one would come visit me, because I would there'd be nothing around me. It would just be like, let's go visit John in his castle? No. Maybe once. And then pretty soon I would be this lonely guy in a castle that I regretted buying. And I have that same thought process when I think about buying my super rad American hot rod car that I am nostalgic for because, because the, the seniors in high school when I was a freshman were nostalgic for it. And I imagine myself driving in this hot rod car. And you, know, you see it every once in a while. You'll be driving down the freeway and there's a guy in a, in a 60s hot rod and you look over at him and you're like, I mean, do you, what, do you, what, what is the feeling that you have? My feeling is like, aw, poor dumbass. <laughs> Did you get lost? You know, I feel like those guys live in a, those cars are emblems of a culture that they're living in. And that culture, the borders of that culture are in Linwood to the north and Tacoma to the south. But I want one of these vehicles, and I picture myself in it. And I picture myself showing up to an event. And honestly, like I, the banners are flapping, and I drive up in my convertible Cadillac, and everyone sort of oohs and applauds. And then someone, and then the spell is broken when somebody says, you don't put your kid in that thing. That, you don't put your kid in that death sled. It's like, oh, right, I wouldn't want to put my kid in it. It has no safety features at all. The brakes are just like two sweaters with a rubber band around them. 
but I can't get away from it. I can't like break my I can't break my infatuation and I realize that I have a similar infatuation about so many like so many things that are going to transform the mundane nature of my existence. And I was thinking about it as I was driving here in my Sebring in my mom's Sebring <laughs> that she gave to me because she didn't want it parked in front of her house anymore. And I was like, Sebring runs fine, actually. It's cheap. It has an airbag. I was explaining to my daughter what an airbag was the other day. She didn't believe it. No, no, a balloon comes out of the steering wheel. <laughs> it protects daddy. She's like, I'm driving, I'm like, what am I looking, how, what, in what way am I looking to have this existence transformed? And I realize I'm looking to, I'm looking to have this car actually transport me back to a time before Kennedy was killed. Like, I want to go back like the boomers wanted to go back to a time before Vietnam. And I don't remember a time before Vietnam. I only have a culty misremembery of it. I don't, you know, they're the only people who remember a time before Vietnam are people my mom's generation. The boomers don't remember it. They just think they do. So, all by way of saying, I'm still going to buy a hot car one day, and it is going to transform my life. And when I drive up to my to the front here, instead of sneaking in the back door, I'm going to park right in front. I'm going to have them put cones out. I'm going to park my car out front, and I'm just going to sit in it while all of you show up for the show. <laughs> What's up? Nope, can't talk. Super busy trying to get a radio station on my AM radio. <laughs> Thanks for coming. I really hope, I really hope that, I, that when I finally get that car, I'll drive, to the, I'll drive up to the block party, and I won't be able to get anywhere close to it. I'll drive around the block party on all the side streets and hopefully some kids there to see some there to see Mount St. Helens Vietnam band will see me drive by and they'll be like yeah John Roderick man of the 60s <laughs> and now an interview with Shelby Earl Shelby has released two albums the most recent Swift Arrows and her first album, Burn the Boats. John produced that first album, and they even recorded a duet together called At the Start. Stay tuned for a special performance of that song, as well as the title track of Shelby's most recent album, Swift Arrows, at the end of the interview. So uh, Shelby and I made a record together, and you've since now made another record with uh, local luminary Damien Gerardo. Two truths. And you are burning up the charts. <laughs> burning up the Northwest Americana charts. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's getting wild, you guys. Americana, interesting to hear you use that word. Uh, reluctantly, you know that's reluctant. When When... So just as a, as a background, if you're not familiar with the whole story of Shelby Earle, she quit her lucrative job 
at Amazon and threw it all in on a career as a songwriter, which was a pretty bold move. You were how old when you made that call? 34. That was last year. <laughs> and you were making pretty good money at Amazon. It was fine. It was more, I mean, it wasn't the money. It was nothing, you know, to write home about. But it was at least steady. It was steady. Health insurance, et cetera. 34 mm -hmm. years old is, is um, I mean, that's not an age that a lot of people just decide to, like, burn it all and do something completely new. That's right. I've done many things backwards. That's one of them. Well, when... when Shelby and I started working together. She contacted me and said, I'm, I've been recording some songs, and I feel like I am getting put in the Americana chick box. And every song, you know, I'm strumming my guitar, and I'm playing my song, and everybody that wants to work with me is like, oh, yeah, yeah, we got this, we got this. Also, do you remember the first thing I asked you? Mm -mm. If you would play bass. Oh, if I would play bass on your record or yeah, in your band? On the oh, record. On your record. Do you remember that? What did I say? You said yes, but why are you this far into a record and you don't know who your bass player is? Mm. <laughs> and then he said, We need to have a coffee. We yep. need to have a sit down, young lady. Yeah, right. And we and you played me the record and it was and every choice that was being made was super Americana. Boink did the boink dum And you didn't want that. Why? It's not what I identify with, and it's not what I heard when I was writing the songs. It's still not what I hear when I write songs. Um, although now I've made a little piece with it because I do think it's in there somewhere. My dad listened to all country, like old country, when I was young. And so I haven't lived with my dad since I was nine. But you realize those are deep roots in there. So I think... Now I'm like, okay, fine. You know, if people are hearing it, it's there. They're not crazy. I'm probably just in denial. But instrumentation-wise, everyone was going in this direction, I think partially because of my name. I swear it's a problem. Shelby Earl is a great country <laughs> name. <laughs> like, they would just come in the studio thinking, I know what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. and They'd have I a piece of straw. And <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and I couldn't steer the ship uh, on my own, enter John Roderick. Well, so it, 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 I, I found in the songs not a lot of Americana, or I mean the same amount of Americana that's in my songs, yep. which is like, I'm an American, <laughs> and, I, and yep. I don't hate America, you know? Like, right. But, like, but uh, we had a great time finding like all the cool melodies and melodic world that was in your music yep. that was not banjo based right thank you <laughs> yeah of course no it was super fun but now you yeah you you've kind of come full circle and do you feel like that is do you feel like something has changed in what people mean when they say americana it might have meant something different four years ago yeah i think it did and you know everyone in this room you're all savvy listeners because you're here um you might be surprised <laughs> at how savvy that's they are that's an assumption <laughs> but uh but, you know, four years ago, there was a big wave of Americana. And so everyone went, oh, yeah, you're, and you're doing it too. Cool. And now that's just not such an obvious assumption being made. And so I'm a little more relaxed about it, I think. So, I mean, the, the record I'm 
writing right now is like a rock record. And someone said, dude, you're totally going backwards. <laughs> you're supposed to do that when you're 20. <laughs> and the Americana record, you know, yeah. when you're 35. Yeah, you're going to make your, like, <laughs> super screamy art record when you're, yeah. you know, 42. Exactly. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> well, I have to say that you have, I mean, it's not uncommon, I don't think, for somebody at 35 or 45 to say, I, I really w wish I was doing something different. But you have fully done it. Like, you didn't ever really look back. I never saw you look back. You just went. And now you have toured all over. You've made two albums. And you, you are living a life, uh, like you're actually living an artist's life in, in every respect. Surrounded by music makers, and and it seems like super happy pursuing your pursuing your like vision. Absolutely. I mean, I have said a few times I've never been more broke, and I've never been happier. And you know, I hope that those don't always go hand in hand. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but it's true. Like I wake up every day. Uh, well, first with what Hamilton Lighthouser. The, the lead singer of the Walkman calls the Black Terror. Um, I don't know if you know anything about that. <laughs> black Terror? What is this Black Terror? When you don't have a structured day and your job and your financial stability are completely based on the opinions of strangers, it's a little scary. So once I get past the Black Terror, which was sort of the first thing that meets me in the face, I am psyched. I can't wait to see what's in my email and if a song idea might come. Or um, So that is what's super, super fulfilling right now. And I love to travel, so the tour bit has been, it's amazing. It's a blast. And do you feel like Seattle has been a supportive music scene, like a supportive culture? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I know, I know. I mean, part of it is Amazon, my Amazon gig was just the last stop um, in my sort of corporate music industry life. That's what I did for 10 years. I worked at Experience Music Project for the first three years it was open booking shows. And then I worked for a small label uh, that was based in New York doing radio promotion and then Amazon. So I had sort of been in around the music community here for a long time and the, the one thing that I think has been sort of a challenge for me is people, industry people who I knew on that side have had a hard time making the leap, uh, you know, and sort of like suspending their disbelief that now I'm a full-time artist. I was always an artist, but I was making decisions with them about promoting other bands and then... Exploiting. Sorry? Exploiting uh, musicians. Exploiting other bands, yes, exactly. And then I was saying, come see me play. And it was weird for everybody. <laughs> for a minute, it was a little weird. So the musicians had no trouble seeing you switch sides, but the people on the business side, whom you would think that would be your greatest asset, right? Like, yeah. I'm an artist now, so all yeah. I know everybody in the music business, but they actually had a harder time. Well, I think the really positive thing is a lot of those people... Um, listened and it and those were ears that I think it would have been hard to get their ears on my music otherwise they listened like as a pal and then thankfully some of them really liked what I made and so that was great 
but I think just maybe it's mostly the live show when you know someone and then you watch them get up on a stage and do their thing. It's It can just be a strange experience. So I was like, but you were in a cubicle before. Right. Something else. So I think it was that. It really is strange how a person is transformed by singing and performing. Carrie Ockrey was here last week and she was al always a example of somebody that when she was on stage and singing, she was unrecognizable mm. to me from who she was when she was working at Cafe Parnassus. Or right. Whatever, you know, like <laughs> you almost couldn't put the two together. And your similar kind of, you know, your intensity on stage is uh, something that, you know, in your daily street life, you either keep completely wrapped up or, you know, or it it's overshadowed yeah. by just sort of your friendliness. You know, I Here's a good one. I was just on tour. I was in Davis, California, and um, playing a playing a radio thing during the day. And there's a little window into the radio studio, and I couldn't see that there was someone behind me holding up a sign, jumping them down. And her sign had a request for this particular song, so they were like, "You have a fan out here." <laughs> <laughs> outside on the around. street? No, just in the, in. she was inside the studio, but she was jumping him down and holding this sign. So it turned out it's this girl who promotes shows in Davis, and I had not met her before until that day, but um, she was actually promoting one of the shows I was going to be playing. So I met her that afternoon, and, and then I met her the next night, and we, we actually got some time to hang. And at the end of our two days, my two days in Davis, and she's Irish, by the way, so I'm going to do the, Irish, she said, shall we have to say, I'm extremely disappointed, man, because I have your record and it's fucking dark and I thought you're going to be a tough ass bitch, but you're super nice, man, and it's very confusing. <laughs> right? Stage Shelby, burp burp Shelby. Yeah, I, I get that a lot. People are like, I thought you were going to be a tough ass bitch. <laughs> tough ass bitch. Like, I have those long winter's records. I thought you were a tough ass yeah. bitch. Yeah, well, I am a tough ass bitch. That's the thing. <laughs> Nobody ever says that. Right. They're like, eek. 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 Um, so, uh, so what is next? You're not, um, you're not slowing down. You have not decided to resume life on the other straight side. Straight life? The straight life. No. No, and no offense to straight life, by the way. I just used to sit at a desk and feel totally misaligned with myself. So for me, I just had to, you know, I think sometimes my pals are like, what's wrong with my job? <laughs> I'm like, do your do, man. So there's no going back for me, I don't think. Uh, or at least, you know, I will walk this path as long as I can. Um, what would it take? How much? How much would you have to get paid? <laughs> to go back? To abandon your dreams? Um... $40,000. <laughs> yeah. So back to a music industry job. <laughs> no, I was thinking about this the other day. I, um, You know, our good friend James Keblis, yes. who ran the Seattle uh, Office of Music and Film, just took a job as the president of Creature Advertising. I saw that, yes. And uh, and that's a, big, uh, that's a big job. He's, of course, a job holder. Yes. Um, and we were talking on the phone, and he was like, yeah, I got a lot of big plans for, the, for, the, for Seattle and the city and all this. And I started to kind of like float away. 
into a dream cloud and I was like, how much money would it take for me to go to work for the man? Yeah. And I was like, hmm. I was throwing some numbers around in my head. And? Would I go to work for the man for X dollars? No. And I kept doing that until I arrived at an amount where it would be crazy for somebody to pay me that much. Yeah. But... It would be crazy for you to not do it. Yeah, because I think I think at a certain point there's an amount of money where if they're crazy enough to pay you that amount of money, they are paying you that amount of money with the knowledge of what they're buying. Yeah. Which is they're buying me being me. <laughs> right? So I, it would be a job where if somebody was like, okay, here's the job. You are like, you'd basically be free roaming lunatic and that is worth yeah a, that is worth a huge pile of money to us because we are rich people and we don't know what money is right i would be like yeah but make us look cool by yeah, being yeah, yeah. Here. oh fuck yeah, yeah i'll do that yeah. every once in a while roll up in a 60s cadillac yeah with the radio on and let everybody see you and maybe like see you drinking a miller light or whatever this is the thing and that's worth 600 grand a year we just <laughs> it's not. We just had this conversation in the van, my band, because everyone currently does not have a job job. And and one one of my bandmates said, I just want a job where I don't have and I was like, to work? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Nailed it. Yeah, it's so it I, I wanna think that that we're a product of a we're a product of a dying time, a dying culture. The, this is the Roman Empire on its last legs. Likely so. And it all started with the electric washing machine. <laughs> and now we've all, none of us know how to plow. I think I'm going to have to listen back to podcasts. Yeah, maybe. Okay. <laughs> but you know what? Like I have, I, have a, I have quite a bit of, uh, I, not quite a bit, but you know, I have, I have a little plot of land at my house. And when I fill in the swimming pool, there's going to be even more land. And and I think like oh maybe I'll you know I'll have my apocalypse farm there, where I'm like growing peas and beans and cucumbers. And then I. Yeah. <laughs> and then I think you know in the event of an apocalypse I would have a lot more fun fighting it out with other people in a supermarket parking lot <laughs> for the few <laughs> remaining cans of beans than I would like being Farmer Joe. Yeah. Because I don't want to work. Yeah. Farming peas feels like work. Stealing peas? Seems like a good party. Seems pretty rock and roll. <laughs> yeah. Right? I'm just hoping to get taken out in the first wave. Is that right? That's true. A lot I'm going to live big until the first wave. And then you're just like, <laughs> ski later. Yeah. That was a common feeling during the, uh, during the 80s, the apocalypse 80s. A lot of people would say to me, like, I just hope when the bombs come, like, I just know no more. And I really couldn't identify with that. Really? I really wanted to be a zombie. I, you know, I wanted to, like, be You want to populate the next... Well, <laughs> that would be nice <laughs> if, I could make it to, if I could make it to a salt mine. <laughs> but even if I had radiation poisoning and I was just, like, wandering around kind of getting sicker and sicker as I, as I like... Um, was one of the last of a dying animal. 
I would prefer that, I think, to just going away. Wait, I told you about the dream I had, right? I don't think so. Well, I mean, I yes. I tweeted it. <clears throat> I had a dream, you guys. I just remembered it. That it was the taking up in the religious sense. Oh, the Do rapture. you remember this? The it rapture. was the rapture. And I was hanging out with you, and I was like, oh, no. Bye, buddy. And then, nope, we both got left. (laughs) I totally thought John was screwed, and I was out of here. Common misconception. And I woke up like, "Ah." oh, no, I'm going to be stuck on a planet, (laughs) a depopulated planet, ruled by John Roderick. (laughs) Night terrors, black terrors. Yeah. Well, it's it's the suicide impulse, too. Like, you know, people would talk to me about their suicide impulse, and I'm like, wouldn't you really rather, like, if you wanted to kill yourself, wouldn't you rather, like, take a bunch of people out with you or at least drive your car off a cliff and have, like, a Thelma and Louise moment, right, into the Pacific Ocean? Something dramatic. Why would you want to just, like, sit in your garage? But then I'm not a suicidal person, so I can't (laughs) relate to the impulse. I'm not, you know, I'm not either. You're not suicidal. No. I've had a bunch of back to dreams. I've had many, many uh, tsunami dreams. And true story, I have died in all of them but one. I thought you weren't supposed to be able to die in your I dream. died in every single one. I would lay down. I would see it coming, and I would lay down and close my eyes. And then, this wow. is a true story. And this, uh, I have not, actually, I have not had this dream since I got free. Mm-hmm. So they're somehow connected to this other life I was living, but I out I scaled a cliff the last time I had that dream. You made it out, and I made. It out. <laughs> wow, you. So you, there's so maybe I would be a survivor, you guys. Yeah, who knows? I think so. You know, I have tsunami dreams all the time, but they're all fantasies that I'm f- super excited about. Here comes the tsunami! <laughs> Woo! <laughs> it's totally wiping out the city! Woo! <laughs> I don't know. I, I was raised on a on a thick broth of a, of pending apocalypse, so I could only find it. I could only have it be fun. At home, you were. Well, or I, just in Alaska. Not not to be too Sarah Palin about it, but we could see Russia from Alaska. <laughs> and when I was a little kid, like some of my formative memories of going to Alaska were, uh, Elmendorf Air Force Base was right there by Anchorage, and it was before the F fifteen was introduced and we still had F4 interceptors which were the loudest jet fighters they ever made and they would go full afterburner on the runway because the Russians would send these uh, bear bombers across the pole and they would enter Alaskan airspace to see how far they could get and so they would send these interceptors up and uh, most of the interceptors were actually stationed further up but Elmendorf would send them off the runway at 3 o'clock in the morning, full afterburner. So you're lying in bed as a kid, fast asleep, and then it's like... And the whole house shakes, the whole town shakes. And we were... You could never be... And and then at noon on Fridays, they would sound the air raid alarm across the whole town. And it lasted for five minutes. You would just sit. It was too loud to talk. You couldn't carry on a conversation. You would just sit wherever you were at noon and listen to. Oh, that's and it just like drowned out your thoughts. 
the only thought you could have was, is this it? Is this it, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I was ready for it to be it. I remember being, I mean, I was in school not too far behind you. A little bit but further little behind. Bit the Russians, had the been, Russians. The threat had been neutralized for the most part. But, but no, we still, we thought the Russians were coming for sure. But we didn't have, I mean, I was safely down here. Yeah, safely in down, Washington. Safely down in <laughs> Washington, where they would they would I mean, they wouldn't they, make it. They would pepper this area with uh, nuclear bombs because of the Boeing. It would have just this would have all been. We would just be a crater, a sea crater here. Not going to happen. <laughs> We're fine now. There is no. There is absolutely no threat. Yeah, no threats of anymore. Nuclear <laughs> proliferation in the world. You're all fine and safe. Mm -hmm. No one is going to come here with a briefcase and set it off. We're fine. <laughs> but I really relished the prospect of an apocalypse. I really did. I still do. <laughs> you know, I bought my house right at the place where when, the, when Mount uh, Rainier erupts and the giant lahar of superheated molten lava comes up the Duwamish River Valley and the resultant tsunami comes up Puget Sound and they collide... It's going to happen right in Tukwila, and I'm going to be waterfront property. <laughs> Just be like, that was amazing. And of course, everybody else will be gone. Right. You people in and Ballard will be under a... <laughs> <laughs> Did somebody just whimper? Oh, oh, no. Sorry, Ballard. Not Ballard. All right. Um, you brought a guitar. I did. Would you like to sing a song together? Yeah. This is a song that Shelby... Uh, that has on her first album, and it is um, a song that she asked me to duet with her on, which I was I had never done before. I'd never duetted with somebody like a proper duet.
We always giggle every time we do. <laughs> well, part of the reason we giggle is that on the recording, there's another four and a half minutes of music, right? It then oh, goes yeah. into a big long. Do you remember what we did in the jam. outro? It's like crazy. Everybody's playing. We layered all these lots vocals. and lots of playing. Big. It was like, wild. Oh, you so <laughs> it was just like giving your soul to Satan. Uh, that's beautiful, and it's, it's a great. It's you, you know, like the the evidence of all the touring you've been doing and all the shows that you've played is just like you have a great confidence on stage now. Thank you. Why don't you play another song? Um, There's not a song that I can join you on in the same way, but. Uh, well, I'll do, I'll do do the the title track song off the second record. It's called Swift Arrows. And uh, this is the right environment to tell you. We made a pretty outrageous video for this song. So you should look it up, but don't look it up at work. It is a pretty gnarly video. <laughs> it's a little gnarly. Uh, in, in a good, I think it's very artful, but not everyone agrees with me. It's not like a Miley Cyrus situation or anything. No, but you, you have had, um, you've had your relationship with Christianity in your life. Mm -hmm. And this video is kind of thematically about no. that relationship? No, but interesting. Oh, did I completely misread it? Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, well, I shouldn't say that, because here's the thing. As, as every music appreciator here knows, a song becomes your own. You know, you get to sort of project whatever meaning you want to on a piece of music and so I don't want to say no like if if someone else had that like oh I get it you know because yeah they I'm, felt I'm that, that way. someone else but that's fascinating mm. now I have to go rewatch it and see uh mm. no actually you know what here's a quick and interesting side note on that um I was doing an interview for the Seattle Weekly and Mark Baumgarten was interviewing me and he said something along those lines he said you write about a lot of uh, you know, there are a lot of religious themes in your songs on this in this collection of songs. We're talking about my my second album, and I said, "Oh, that's interesting. Um, I I suppose maybe one or two, but no more than anyone any songwriter you know thinks about these questions and writes about these questions." But he said, "Well, specifically your song Sea of Glass," and I said, "What? No." And and then he said, well, you quote Revelations in it. The whole chorus is a quote from Revelations. <laughs> and, plagiarism. And here is the tr a true story. Well, I did plagiarize that chorus, but from a dream. I It's the only time I dreamt this chorus whole. And in my dream, it was a Flaming Lips song. And I woke up and I Googled it. I kept, I kept waking myself up because I was like, that's so good. I Googled it, I was trying to remember it, and then I finally got myself up and typed it in, and it wasn't there, so I was like, it's mine now. <laughs> you turns know? out it was God's. It turns out it was the Lord's words. That's not the song I'm going to play you. But, uh, so yeah, people hear all kinds of stuff. This is called Swift Arrows. When words are not enough 
done is not enough to have won to have won is all you want you Shelby Earl. Thanks very much. <laughs> okay. All right. Shelby, thank you so much. Thanks to Shelby Earl for being on the show. Starting in April, Shelby is embarking on a West Coast tour, including dates in Portland, Seattle, Eugene, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and San Diego. For dates and tickets, or to buy any of Shelby's really great records, go to shelbyearl.com. All guests on Roderick's Rendezvous receive a mug with John's face on it. To purchase your own or to purchase tickets to a live recording of the show, go to johnroderick.com. Roderick's Rendezvous is recorded live inside the Jewel Box Theater at the Rendezvous Restaurant and Lounge in Seattle. The show is produced by Bailey McCann, Colin Curry, Virginia Roberts, Ben London, and me, Adam Pranica. For more information about John Roderick, his music, his writing, or tour dates, visit johnroderick.com. <laughs>